Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Hui Huin of Alabama Woodworker, and I'm joined by my friends, Sean Walker of Simple Cove. How's it going? I'm doing great. And Guy Dunlop of Guy's Woodshop. Hey. Hey, man. This podcast is intended to answer your questions, the woodworking community, and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We also want to thank our new patron from our Patreon campaign, Rich LaHoke. Thank you for listening and for supporting the show. If you'd like to support the show, we are simply asking for a small donation to cover the costs of bringing you this podcast. Please go to patreon.com forward slash woodshoplife if you'd like to show your support. So let's get right into it. Guy, what's your first question? Oh, I'm up first? Yep. This question is from Homaris Woodworks, and he says, Hey guys, questions on when a breadboard end is needed on a tabletop. I'm making my first kitchen table, very nice, with a five-quarter, 35-inch by eight-foot oak top. My client did not like the look of a breadboard end, so I'm a bit concerned about movement down the road. The top won't overhang, overhang the aprons by more than four inches, and I'm planning to connect it with those Z-clips with a couple of cross pieces to keep it rigid. Do you think I run the risk of cupping? I've thought about getting some of those C-channel iron to route to the underside, but is that overkill? Yes, it's overkill. I've built, in my day, probably 100 tabletops, and I've never, ever seen the need to put C-channel iron underneath the bottom. Make sure your wood is dry, number one. Number two is it really depends on how wide the boards are. Mm -hmm. So if it's 35 inches wide and you're dealing with boards that are, let's say, 12 inches wide, it stands a pretty good chance of cupping. Finding oak boards that wide is pretty easy. I would, I would go the other route and I'd make it like five, probably like five boards. There's a, a fallacy also about alternating the ring patterns, you know, yep. smiley face front. That's not going to do anything. I don't, I don't think it will anyways. But uh, my best recommendation is to get the boards like around six to seven inches wide. Make sure they're nice and dry when you do it and make sure that you put you know, the same amount of finish on both sides of the table. There's going to be a little bit of cupping no matter what. The The C channel is a little bit overkill. I, I don't see the need for it, but I think using the Z clips or even, you know, like buttons, if you know what I'm talking about there, guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Underneath to, to lock the tabletop to the apron, I think that's going to be good. Yeah, I think a lot of the the C clamps that you see are on slab tables that don't necessarily have a base that have aprons that go all the way around the top. Right. Now, they may be an open base, so there's no aprons to really hold that top down. So they use the C channel and whatnot. But um, yeah, I mean, you pretty much nailed it from my uh, limited knowledge on this. But the, the, it, it's the aprons jobs and the Z clips to help hold that table top down to keep it nice and flat. And uh, you could also you could use a, a quarter sawn type lumber to help. Um, help that fight against cupping with a, a more stable cut of wood to help that. But I mean, I think you've uh, you pretty much nailed it, guy. From from what I heard. What about you, Hui? Now, generally speaking, a breadboard end is to prevent the or to mitigate the cupping issues that you might get from uh, wider boards. Correct? Am I correct in that, or am I incorrect? From any boards. From yeah, any you're boards. correct. Yeah. 
I've made a couple of tables. I haven't made a ton of tables, but I've made a couple of tables and none of the tables that I've made uh, have had breadboard ends. And I, I didn't find one. I don't particularly care for the look of it, but I haven't found that I needed that just so long as I had proper support on the aprons with those Z clips or, or, or buttons. I don't see the need for those C channels either for five quarter, 35 inches. I don't think that's really... I wouldn't see the need for either the breadboard ends or the C channel. I think if you just mill your material properly, like you said, guy, putting an equal amount of finish on both sides, and then I don't even see the need to to do the alternating uh, rings thing. I've tried that, and I've done it without, and it it really hasn't. I haven't seen much of a difference between the two. Yeah, if if the if you do the alternating rings thing and the boards start to cup, you'll just get a big it'll ripple. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm I'm more a proponent of taking a look at the grain and making sure the grain is a going the same direction mm-hmm. more than anything else, and that you have a pleasing grain pattern so the it's hard to tell the boards, you know, that they're they're separate boards. But like I said, the C channel, you know, I've seen guys do it, and it's like it's a belt and suspenders kind of thing. It's totally unnecessary. And you can look back in, in at history and and see how they did it before us. I mean, they didn't have C-channels and stuff. Yeah, they sure as hell didn't use C-channels. Right, right. (laughs) I don't know who started that whole thing. I think it had to do with slab furniture. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's where I started seeing it. Without aprons underneath, but without an apron or anything to support it. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, because some of the bases I've seen are like pretty wild metal bases with, you know, maybe two or three points of of connecting the top two. And there's just no really no support to hold that down so they use C-channel. Stuff that I've seen anyways. Okay, I guess. Yeah. All right. So I think Sean's got the next question. Yep. Yeah, I sure do. And the first one that I have is from Matt. And he asks, is there a special technique for sanding roundovers? I've tried sanding roundovers by hand, but end up with scratch marks along the top of the piece. When I try sanding with a random orbit sander, I feel like it eats away too much wood and it's not consistent roundover anymore. Thoughts? Well, when I'm doing any sort of profile like that, whether that's a chamfer or a roundover, um, I'll first, I will sand by hand with the final grit that I'm sanding the whole piece up to. So that's 220 or 320. And I really like to use the foam backed sandpaper, um, which will allow the sandpaper to sort of conform to the profile, whether again, that's a roundover. Now, if I do have a chamfer, I won't use the foam backed paper. I will use just your regular hook and loop or something. And that's like the, the sheet sandpaper. And I'll use a, a hard block uh, just so that I don't mess up the profile on a chamfer since it's nice and sharp. But you really shouldn't need to sand too much. If, if you're using a sharp bit in your router and you're getting some burning, you need to probably check the speed or the feed rate uh, for optimal surface quality. And plus, you need to check your bit and make sure that it's you know nice and uh, sharp and not dull. But for the most part, you just got to be real light on the sanding. You shouldn't need to remove too much. Uh, so start with the higher grits. I'm assuming he's talking about sanding round overs like on a tabletop that's what i'm i'm guessing like that's a round what over. i gather yeah okay if you're doing round overs on a top or anything for that matter i guess you know if you're sanding with the grain you should just be able to do it with the piece of sandpaper in your hand it's when you get to the end grain that it can become an issue and what i see a lot of people do and it makes me one of those things that makes me cringe is the saying people take sandpaper and running it against the end grain because it's easier that way. That will scratch it up. 
and there will be a lot of scratch marks on it. Not on the top of the piece, but on the end of the piece. Yeah, going cross grain, correct? Going cross grain, yeah. I always just go, it takes a long time and it's a pain in the butt. I'll sand with the grain on the end grain. Mm-hmm. And it's labor intensive and it takes a long time and it sucks, but it's the only way to do it. And I also go up an extra grit on the ends of the pieces, on the end grain of the pieces, especially if I'm adding a, an oil-based finish on it because those will get darker. And the same applies for staining the end grain too. Mm. Yeah. You want to go up a grit or two. Now, I've definitely been guilty of going cross grain on the end grain. And yeah, you definitely learn very quickly that, uh, that that's incorrect because then you have to go back and do it the proper way, which is going with the grain. I'm the same way as you, Sean. I like using a soft interface pad. That way it sort of ensures that I'm not getting any facets on mm-hmm. the roundovers. <laughs> There's your dog. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I like, I like a soft interface pad that tends to help a little bit so that uh, you don't get those facets on the, on the edge. Uh, of your Randover. Well, I, I don't even know why you'd use a random orbit sander. Just use a piece of sandpaper and stick it in your hand and mm-hmm. go at it. Yeah. And that kind of led to my last point in that if you're needing to go that aggressive, something needs to, to be fixed, whether it's a dull bit, your feed, your speed, something needs to be looked at. If you're needing to go that that rough with cleaning up your Randovers, we need to probably stop and check the bit and make sure that you get a good quality bit. Uh, yeah. A good way to a good way to to do roundovers too. I don't know if you guys have heard of this before or any type of edge treatments is don't do your final pass as a final pass. Get it to where it's going to be really close within like a 32nd of an inch mm-hmm. of where you want it to be. Do all your edges doing the end grain first, then raise it up just a little bit and then do your final pass. If you're having problems with burning, that yep. helps quite a bit. That's a great tip, especially if you get tear out on it. You know, just do that final pass real light to prevent tear out. Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, I said, I, I like using just hand sand. I, I'm, I'm, I'm in the process now of finishing a project and I've got, uh, let's see, I started yesterday. I've got 10 hours in sanding in this piece right now and I still have a grit to go. Yeah. Wow. So many people. Well, what what happens? And this is this is something I, I harp on a lot. I don't know if I've said it on here before, but you get to the end of a project, you want it to be done. You everybody hates sanding. Blah 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 blah. And people rush through it. And here's a really good example of rushing through something like a roundover. Do it by hand. Take the time to do the roundovers correctly. You know, you spend, you may have 40, 50, 60, 100, 150 hours, whatever it is in your project. Don't rush through the finishing. Do the surface prep properly and put the finish on properly. You have to, you have to, you know, that's actually when I slow down the most. Yep. Is when I get into surface prep mode. I see little nicks, you know, when I'm, I'm, did the first uh, course of sanding on this. I had my iron ready to go and some, you know, a water bottle to steam any dents out I found. I mean, it's really your last chance to catch any of those mistakes that you might have made mm-hmm. before you put final finish on it. So just slow down, take it easy, but spend the time. I've definitely spent countless hours sanding all these chair parts. It's just, it's <laughs> grueling. It's grueling. But I mean, it's your last opportunity. You don't have yep. another chance after that. Because you're going to put finish on. 
You're going to yep. sand all that finish off? <laughs> and you'll regret it if you let it go. Yep. It's worth the effort. Definitely. So, I think I'm next. This is from Hunter. His question is about ordering sheet goods and hardwoods online versus buying in person and being able to pick through boards versus having the distributor pick it for you. Do you have experience ordering large quantities of sheet goods online? What about hardwoods? What do I need to know before placing an order for things like this? Any tips for ensuring I receive quality plywood for cabinets? I'm relatively new to woodworking, so any technical advice or terminology to use would be greatly appreciated. I know higher quality plywood typically has more plies, but I'm not sure how to even specify this or tell how many plies the sheets for sale online have. Do you have any recommendations for sources for ordering online? I'm located in Tampa, Florida. All right. So I've ordered hardwood lumber online. And I shouldn't even say that it was technically online. I mean, the store is online, but it, I actually called the supplier and told them exactly how many board feet I needed and uh, what boards I needed for tabletop, things like that. I ordered from Erie and Lumber and they're, they're very good. They're very reputable. Having them ship that much wood to me, I believe it was about 300 board feet, somewhere around there. It's about $1,500 worth of, worth of hardwood. And having them ship it to me actually was more cost effective than me getting the equivalent premium hardwood from my local supplier here. We don't have a ton here in Huntsville, Alabama, but it was a good experience. Uh, Erie and Lumber that I used knew what I was talking about. They deal with a lot of furniture makers. But when it comes to plywood, I've not ordered online, but I've ordered from the next town over and they've drove it. They shipped it to my house uh, on a truck. So they ha- they have a truck that goes around and, and they're able to go within a specific radius. But it was on it was on their truck, not common freight. Correct. It was on their truck. And when I was buying the plywood, I was suppl- I was providing to them the quality of plywood that I wanted. And what I had gotten was a B face pre-finished birch ply and then the other face was a D face. So it had some defects, some uh, knots that had been filled. And the reason was because it was going to be a painted cabinet. So the inside was pre-finished. It had a nice, good-looking face. And then the outside was going to be unfinished where I was going to paint it. Guy, you guys have talked on, on your podcast, have talked a lot about plywood. And I'm, I'm not too keen on plywood other than the plywood that I've used. I've used now, I've used birch plywood, uh, excuse me, Baltic birch plywood, which comes in a five by five sheet. And I've actually had that delivered to me as well. Baltic birch can be gotten in eight, four by eight sheets too. Okay. It's not just five by five. It's more commonly in five by five, but you can get it in four by eight sheets also. The grading process for it is, is actually pretty simple for plywood. Your show face is an A through D grade. A being the best and D being the worst. Mm -hmm. And then the non-show faced is a number one through four. So you would have like in your case, what you were talking about was probably like a B4. Okay. So if you get A1, that's the best grade. The best grade, yeah. Yeah. So you've got an A face. So in other words, you have to think kind of like regular hardwood where hardwood is 
select them better first and selects common too common things like that right. how many knots how many imperfections things like that an a face is going to be damn near perfect right and if you get a one plywood the other side is not going to be the same quality of hardwood let's say you get cherry plywood and it's a one the the one side is going to be awesome mm -hmm. the other side is still going to be pretty darn good but the grain pattern might be a little bit wonky, things like that. So like, let's say you're building a, a cabinet, like a bookcase out of cherry plywood. And you're not only going to see the outside, you're going to be also seeing the inside. You want to get an A1 plywood. Mm -hmm. And the stuff isn't really that much more expensive. You know, the last time I bought A1 cherry plywood, I paid $68 a sheet huh. for it. For four by eight? For four, four by eight sheets, yeah. For A1? A1, yeah. That seems extremely cheap. I got quoted one one forty for A one the other day, and I paid eighty for for B four or no B two. I, I I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> the 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 lumber yard I buy from here locally that ships to me, they're actually about an hour and a half away. They're like one of the largest lumber yards this side of the Mississippi, and they're located here in Indiana. But they're really good. Uh, Frank Miller Lumber, FrankMillerLumber dot com. And I did not get paid for that. Yeah, it's um, not sponsored. <laughs> it's not sponsored. But that's where I get all my hardwood from also. But anyways, going back to the plywood question, I've never bought plywood online. Now, when I get plywood from my supplier, I don't get to pick through the piles either. Right. Nor when I order hardwood from them, do I get to pick through the piles. Right. That being said, they're a very, very good supplier a and B, I've been buying from them for 20 years. They know what I'm doing. In other words, they know I'm a semi pro slash hobbyist woodworker where I'm trying to make, you know, very high quality pieces of furniture. And they, and my say, I actually have a salesperson assigned to me. He's got other customers too, but I've got a salesperson and I can call him up and say, Hey, I'm building this. I need it to look like this. this. And the boards come to me and they're wonderful. Yeah. That's something you can't really do in a lot of cases. Now, I know there's some very good companies. The only time I, I bought lumber online from two companies, one was um, Bell Forest Products. Yep. And I had very good luck with them. And I know a couple people have very good luck with them. And another one was C.R. Mooters Paw, which is in Dayton, Ohio. Mm -hmm. I got some Honduran mahogany from them. Mm -hmm. Again, fantastic experience. I've used uh, Bell Forest as well, and I got tiger maple from them, and it was very, very good tiger maple. It was wonderful stuff to work with. The only lumber that I've purchased online was from eBay of all places. I had to make a few boxes a, a few years ago, and uh, I purchased some some really nice uh, sapili on eBay, believe it or not, because you can see the picture and the shipping was free and the price is really good. And the only sheet goods that I purchased was a uh, some mahogany from Home Depot of all places. <laughs> good deal. Yeah. I mean, it was excellent quality, but that's that's my only experience. I, I mainly deal with local people for, uh, for my lumber and hard. I got a really nice hardwood place or um, sheet goods place near me that has everything. So I just go there, pick it up, and, uh, and same thing with my lumber. Guy, you had mentioned that you have a salesperson that's assigned to you 
When I buy plywood from the next town over from me, I have the same thing. And I, I basically tell him what the project that I'm doing and what it what it is that I need. And he pretty much tells me, okay, this is what you need. And this is how much it's going to cost. That makes it a lot easier, at least for me, in terms of understanding what it is that I need and making sure that I get the right thing. Having that salesperson to be able to communicate with is, is at least vitally important for me. Now, I don't know if whether or not where you are, if there's a distributor that that will do that, but I would definitely check, uh, go on Google and and check and see if whether or not any of these uh, distributors that are in your area will actually talk you through it or coach you through it. And if you're able to get a salesperson that's assigned to you, I think that's probably going to be the best bet in terms of making sure that you get the best quality that you need. He's also got a comment in there that says, I know higher quality plywood typically has more plies. That is not necessarily correct. The only thing that's going to have more than, let's say, five plies is Baltic, Baltic, birch, is Baltic yeah. birch. Most of the stuff, most of the stuff you're going to find is a, is like a five core poplar. Right, right. I was that was the next question I was going to ask you was uh, yeah. like for cherry plywood. Is it? We're not talking like every single layer is cherry. It's it's a different core, correct? No, it's it's poplar. poplar. Yeah, it's. I mean, the stuff that I buy that's the A one quality is the exact same stuff you'd buy at Home Depot. It's Columbia Forest products, pure bond plywood. The difference in quality is in the veneer on top of it, mm-hmm. not the core. Right. For the most part, I've built a lot of stuff. All the cabinets in my shop. That's all right from Home Depot. I ordered that stuff online and just had them deliver it. Good quality. Yeah, it's fine. I mean. You're going to get a couple sheets here and there that aren't perfectly flat or whatever, but then you you know you cut smaller parts out of it. But that's going to happen with where you get plywood from anybody. I mean, it's just the nature of the beast. And the thing you're going to run into on uh, Home Depot and places are you going to run into the limitations of what species they carry in the store. Yeah. Well, that's, that was a very good question. Guy, we're back to you. Back to me already? Already. I got to find the question now. We got a lot of questions. Thanks for sending in questions, everybody. Keep sending them. Uh, This question is from Matt. Hi, guys. Love the show. Well, thanks, Matt. I have a would you rather question on finishing. Would you rather finish a whole large project or try and match a finish for a smaller project? My specific scenario is refinishing my basement bar. I'm going with dark cabinets, and I know I'm going to have to make shelves and trim to match. Do I get unfinished cabinets and finish it myself so they're the same or try and matched pre-finished cabinets? Thanks, Matt. Unless you are an expert at coloring finishes, (laughs) which I am not and most people are not, I would always try to finish the entire project the same color rather than trying to match a finish. Color matching is a very difficult thing. You have to understand color theory very well, and you have to know exactly, there's a lot of experimentation to it. There's a lot of things that come into play, the type of wood you're using, the type of uh, stain you're, or the type of dye you're using. There's a, there's a lot to it, man. <laughs> Every time I've tried to match a color, I have failed horribly. I don't know, what do you guys feel about this? I know nothing about color matching, so no way. You would try to match the stuff to what, save time? 
save money? And what's the goal of trying to match it? I mean, if it's to save time, you're probably going to spend more time and more money on material trying to get it to match. Unless like guy said, you're, you're really good at finishing. I know I would spend more time and more money on different stains and dyes and finishes and whatever to try to match the existing cabinets than I would to just finish the whole thing with one product that I know they're all going to look the same in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Typically guys that do a lot of furniture, furniture, is that a word? <laughs> furniture? It is that's, now. <laughs> that's, that's a contraction of furniture and finishing. Guys that, that are really good with that are furniture restorers. Because they'll have to match a you know a piece of veneer or a part or something like that to an existing antique, and they're very good at, at uh, coloring and getting things to say the same color. If you want to learn more about coloring wood, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to go back to another podcast that I'm on called the Against the Grain Podcast. And a couple months ago, we had a gentleman on by the name of Josh Brackett who is a restorer of fine furniture in the Atlanta area. And he gave us a really good rundown on color theory. I've listened to it three different times because yeah. it's that good. I really wish we'd had Freddie on at the same time because he's really good with that stuff too. He was unavailable to make that episode. But I, I recommend listening to that, Matt. And uh, that'll give you an idea of some of the depth of what we're what I'm trying to convey to you. It's difficult, man. And it's a, it's not a science. It's an art. You know, the, the best advice I can give you would be to, to do all the cabinets at once. Don't try to match something. Mm-hmm. Well, it really depends. I mean, you know, are, are, is this a high end bar in a $2 million home or mm-hmm. is it, you know, a bar in the basement underneath the double wide? Not mm-hmm. that there's anything wrong with living in a double wide. I'm not saying you do, but I think you get my point. It really depends on, on what, what you're trying to accomplish and the, the quality of the piece. I think Sean hit the nail on the head before, too. You're going to spend a lot more time and probably a lot more money trying to get it to, to match than if you just would have went ahead and made all the same color in the first If place. you watch these guys on YouTube, like the, the guy that I recommended a couple of episodes ago, Thomas Johnson, Antique Furniture and Restoration, when he refinishes a piece and he needs to color some veneer to match that he's replaced – he uses a lot of products. I mean, he uses, he'll use a dye, then he'll use, he'll tint the shellac. And then sometimes they come back with tinted lacquer and then he'll use this and that. And then, I mean, there's a lot of products that he uses to really match this stuff. You know, I'm not saying you're going to need all of that, but if you, if you don't know what you're doing, it's going to add up quick. And, and what happens when you mess up and it doesn't match at all and you go too far one way, I would just rather do it all at the same time with the same product. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now, is is it back to you, Sean? It is back to me. Sweet. This is from Ryan. Hi, I have a question for the podcast. I'm about to start drawers for my dresser build, and the sides call for half-inch material. Would you use four-quarter material making a lot of waste, or would you go to a thicker material and resaw for the half-inch final dimension, hoping to cut down on waste? With the type of wood you are using, sway your decision as wood stability may cause the wood to cup bow more than others. Thanks, Ryan. This is a good question. For me, I mean, it all depends on how well I plan my projects. I like to buy eight quarters stock and uh, we'll resaw it to probably get three half inch pieces out of it for the drawer sides. And the initial flattening of the two and an eighth, which is what my, my eight quarter stock roughly is, two and an eighth, two inches, give or take. Mm-hmm. So the initial flattening, and then you're going to have to go back to the joiner to, to, to flatten up one face after you do resawing. It'll typically yield for me about three oversized drawer sides and 
I typically shoot for a heavy five eighths thickness and then I'm going to let it rest. Uh, I'm going to let it rest for a day or two and then take it down to the final thickness and I'll rejoint that if it needs to. Um, so if I don't plan, then again, I'll start with four quarter and take it to a heavy five eighths and let it rest until I absolutely need it. And then I'll take it down to the final thickness. Now you can get a good feel for how the, how, if, if it's going to be a wood that you're going to need to let to make thicker when you're resawing it, uh, depending on how it resaws, if you're starting to slice the pieces off and you see they're immediately cupping or it's, it's pinching the blade, you're going to have, you're probably going to want to take some thicker, uh, passes on that to make thicker material because it's going to move. Um, but typically that's what I do for, that's my game plan is I just start with eight quarter and end up with three heavy five eighths pieces to take down to the final thickness and, uh, and go from there. What about you guys? Oh, the same eight quarter all the way, man. Yeah, definitely eight quarter. If, if so I you start it. eight quarter and then get it down to half inch material. No, resaw it. Resaw it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's what I said. And then cut, resaw it down to half inch material. What do you make your drawer sides out of? poplar um i've made them out of maple Mm -hmm. i have a bunch of basswood unfortunately the basswood is four quarters so i'm wasting a lot of material by doing it that way because when i resaw it down the other half is not thick enough for what i need it for so i i I end up using it for drawer bottoms or something like that but i would much rather be using eight quarter and 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 same as you sean i'm when i'm using eight quarter it's either going to be poplar or it's going to be maple yeah, that, that's a good point about the using the leftover resawing piece for drawer bottoms. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what I do. You see, the, the eight-quarter material is typically a lot more expensive than four-quarter material. So what I'm doing most of the time when I order, I never order four-quarter stock. It's always five-quarter at a minimum. Mm-hmm. I'll take the five-quarter, and if I'm you know using maple, I'll cut half-inch, and then whatever's left over, actually, I'll cut it down to about maybe like five eighths. And then the rest of it I use for drawer bottoms. Right. That's a good way to do it. I would, myself, I wouldn't buy eight quarter material to do drawer sides with because it's just, it's more expensive that way. Where, where I get lumber from, the eight quarter is, I only have four quarter or eight quarter. I don't have any in between. Oh, okay. You can't get six quarter. Six quarter is another way to go too. Because mm-hmm. if yeah. you try to get half inch material, let's say two slabs of half inch material out of a, even a five quarter piece of rough sawn stock, you're going to be in for big disappointment. It's going to be very hard to get two half inch pieces of material out of five quarter material. Sean, you make a really good point about not being able to get five quarter. I can't get five quarter here as well if I'm if I'm going locally. And so that's why I'm either getting you know, four quarter or eight quarter. I can't get the five quarter or six quarter here locally. Now, when I'm ordering online, that's a different story. Your local supplier does not have eight quarter or five quarter stock? No. <laughs> really? Yep. Huh. Cookie. Yeah. yeah. I've got just two small places that I get my material from and it's four quarter for one price and eight quarter is typically about a 75 cents or a dollar more board foot. So, you know, depending on what I do, I'm just going to get eight quarter and yeah. Yeah. Cause there's gonna be a lot less waste that way. Yeah. yeah. But you could still take the four quarter and try to get the, the, the drawer bottoms out of it. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So that's, I said, that's what I do. And especially if you're using like something like hard maple, man, trying to get, you know, that stuff just 
you cut it and it just goes, it can get wonky really quickly on you. Generally speaking, if I'm using, if I'm using maple, I'm, I'm getting the, the, the soft maple, the red leaf maple for drawer sides. Uh, and, and then of course, poplar. It has, it has, it has leaves on it. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. I've got trees all over my yard. I have no idea what kind of trees they are. They're <laughs> trees. They have branches on them. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know anything about like, you know, how to recognize a walnut tree in the wild. That's it's to me, it's a freaking tree. Only if you see the grain. <laughs> yeah. yeah I've, I've had people ask me, what, what kind of tree is this? I'm like, I have no idea until you, you know, saw it up or. It's a big tree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but for me, locally, eight quarter poplar is not that expensive. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it, for me, it's a difference between a buck and a buck and a half a board foot. Yeah. But I'm still, I, I don't like making drawers out of poplar. I feel it's too soft. Mm. I want mm. something a little bit harder. I usually use, I usually use soft maple like you do. Yeah. And if I can't huh. get the soft maple, I'll get hard maple. Yeah. yeah. So you, you think they're too soft for drawer sides? I, I think so. Yeah. Huh. I want something a little bit harder, especially if I'm using the, uh, uh, if I'm not using any type of drawer runner systems. I'll make the the drawer slides and the sides out of maple, and you'll wax them real good. Sometimes you know, yeah, I'll put some wax on, but I don't, you know, I'm not I'm not saying you have to put wax on them. Mm. There's a lot of drawers I don't bother even bother putting wax on because they just slide so nice. Because mm. they slide so nice right off my saw, mm. right <laughs> off that powermatic. <laughs> yeah, it's all because of the powermatic. Now I've got a saw stop. <laughs> you would have to wax the hell out of them. Yeah, that's why me and Pui have our uh, our stock of uh, paste wax. Yeah. Uh, let yep. me ask you. Exactly. Let me ask you this question: Say you're resawing a board, whether it be six quarter or eight quarter, and you notice there's tension in the board. It's starting to pinch that blade. What do you guys do? Do you stop, adjust the fence to take off more, or do you choose another board and not even risk it? I usually have enough. I'm not cutting it that close. To where if it starts to pinch on me, and I know that I, I just keep I keep motoring on. It's a bandsaw. Yeah, I, I've never. No, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not worried about it. Like messing up the blade or kicking back. I'm talking about because when you pull that piece off, it's going to be cupped. It's going to be bowed. It's going to oh, twist or something like that. I just want to make sure that you have enough material to get down to your final thickness. Is what I'm saying. I guess. Yeah, I, I dig what you're saying. That's what I was saying before. Don't try to take five quarter material saying, well, I've got an extra quarter of an inch and I'm going to get two pieces of half inch material out of it. Right. Not going to happen. That's why I said I'll cut it. I'll cut the, the half inch material five eighths, in some cases, three quarters of an inch, mm-hmm. mill it down a half inch and then take whatever I have left over. And that's how thick the drawers are. Yeah. Or the, the drawer bottoms are. I'm generally going an eighth inch he- heavy. It depends. I mean, if it's if it's if it's maple, especially if it's hard maple, I'm cutting it a lot thicker than that. Yeah, because it ha- tends to have a lot of tension in it. Yeah, yeah, it's going to have a lot more tension in it. Right, right. Yeah, and I think you're going to get less of the bowing and pinching and stuff. The thicker that you resaw it, like I've cut oak down to a quarter inch thick for uh, the little chest that I have that I made the, the tonsu style. Man, that stuff bowed immediately and there was no saving it no matter how much i'm gonna have to mill it up to a 16th of an inch to be able to save that from the cup and the bow and stuff but i just ended up bumping the fence out a little bit taking it making it you know a half inch to start with and just going from there sometimes you just got to adapt and change your plans up a little bit depending on the the material that you're using and how it's acting Mm -hmm. yep cool 
Well, that is uh, the question for Ryan. Appreciate that, Ryan. What about you? What do you got for us? All right. I've got the last question. This is about crosscut sleds. I'm wanting to make a crosscut sled for trimming the ends on boards that I've glued up. I want the crosscut sled to have the most capacity that I can that it can. So I'm probably going to end up building something like Huey's aircraft carrier. <laughs> Any tips on making that thing as accurate as possible? Uh, is there anything you'd do differently if you had to remake it? There are a couple methods to making a crosscut sled as accurate as possible. The method that I use is outlined in two very good videos. Uh, one is authored by William Ng, and the other one is by Mark Spagnuolo, the Wood Whisperer. And so if you want to check out those videos, they talk about the five cut method and how to adjust a crosscut sled. That being said, I think I, I'm going to actually concede and say, I think I actually made my aircraft carry a little too big, probably bigger than it really needs to be. And the reason completely unnecessary. And the reason, <laughs> and the reason actually, the why I made it as big as I did was like, oh, I'm going to cut cabinet sides on uh, on the cross crosscut sled. Well, I now have a track saw, and I have a big enough table saw. I don't do that. If I need to make an accurate cut crosscut that's really really wide, I just use my track saw. And we've mentioned this in the past. If you don't have a track saw, you can make a track saw type jig using some scrap plywood and just using your circular saw. That being said, if I were to make it over again, I probably wouldn't make it as big as I did. I made it as big as I did because I thought that I would be doing a lot more cross cuts without the track saw. So, but yeah, to make it as accurate as possible, uh, if you're just making a, a cross cut sled in general, Definitely check out the five cut method. That's what I used. And I think I did two iterations of it and I got within uh, a thousandth of an inch over a 27 inch cut. Perfectly fine. Very accurate. I, I actually think William Ng is the one that I don't want to say invented, but first, uh, actually, I think he is the guy that kind of invented the whole five cut method. Yeah. And, and I think Mark Spagnuolo mentions that too, that he- yeah is modeling his video off of Williams, Williams five cut method. Yeah. Well, I wasn't throwing shade on Mark. I love oh, no. Mark. Definitely not. I just want to give, you know, proper credit to where credit's due. Anyways. Yeah. I mean, everybody struggles with that. They want a cross cut sled that has, you know, 8,000 inch cross cut capacity. Cause I'm going to cut this. All that stuff is really unnecessary. There's so many different ways to cross-cut something and actually do it really accurately. One of the best things I saw recently, I'm not talking track saw or cross-cut sled, but my friend uh, Brian Grella at, I should say Dr. Brian Grella at Garage Woodworks, he was cutting a tabletop and he doesn't have a track saw. He doesn't have a big, huge cross-cut sled or anything. So what he did was he, he joined the edge of a board and cut his cut the end you know rough with a cirque saw and then took this took a took a board and put it across the grain on the end and um, screwed it down to the underneath of the tabletop and then ran that edge on the fence of his table saw and cut up from underneath it does that make sense yeah did he use like an l fence or something like that nope yeah i was like damn that was a good idea so he just took a board and screwed it down to the, you know, cross grain on the end that he wanted to make, you know, perfectly 90, mm -hmm. made sure that that was 90 to the, to the edge, edge of the board and then just ran over the table saw. Yep. I see now. I see. Yep. Using that, using that board as a, a fence against a fence. Very cool. Yeah. 
I'd never seen that before. Sean, how did you go about making your crosscut? Because I know, Guy, you're using you're using uh, an Incra uh, crosscut sled now, or yeah, and I've I've made I've made many a crosscut sleds, mm-hmm. you know, more than I can probably count on on one hand, anyways. But I only have three fingers on my one hand because <laughs> I don't own a saw stop. So, anyways, um, <laughs> what does that have to do with crosscut sleds? <laughs> it was just a joke. Oh, okay. I thought I missed something there. Okay. No, I was like, I, I can count on, on, on one hand. Uh, oh. I, I can only count up to three because I only have three things. Anyways, you. anyways. So <laughs> even though I knew the five cut method existed, I didn't care. It's getting so crazy stupid that it's like, I don't care. If it's within ten thousandths of an inch over 12 inches, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. I always just put an angle on thing and <laughs> squared it up that, you know, just took a triangle and I'm not, I'm not kidding. Just took a speed square and used that. That's all I ever did. And it was fine. It always worked more than well enough for me. Yeah, I think it's fine to do the, the five cut method. Uh, just don't go crazy chasing perfection, you know, get close yeah. enough and then call it a day. Yeah. Um, you know, I have a smaller crosscut sled and I went smaller on mine because if I needed a, to do larger panels, I would either use the Incra uh, crosscut sled. I think it's the 5,000 or I would use the, uh, my track saw. Yeah. So I went the, the smaller route. Um, and it's, in my opinion, I like it better than just using a a, um, a miter gauge because it, it has more capacity. Well, depending on if you have a saw stop, it's not as deep as a Powermatic. Um, so it, it has more capacity than my miter gauge. And I like the fact that it brings the, the, the offcut back to me, the offcut piece, instead of just dangling next to the blade. So I just like the comfort of using a crosscut sled. But I like the smaller uh, sleds and just just know what, what sizes you typically crosscut mm-hmm. and make it you know something. But if you're only going to go one, yeah, make it a little bit larger. Maybe not as big as Huey's. <laughs> no, it doesn't need to be as big. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's just so, crazy, man. So it doesn't look like a uh, an outfeed table sliding across your. Uh... Oh, it's just, but it's so heavy and so big, yeah. and it's got so much room to store. Well, I got and... I got a lot of muscles, so it's all right. It's all right. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm old and weak. You know, another way another way I cross cut tabletops too is I use my MFT top mm-hmm. along with the track saw, and they have these. And I don't use the the Festool thing that attaches to the rail. I use these things called rail dogs that screw up underneath your rail, and you just put those right on top of the the table in the MFT holes. You shove your piece of wood underneath it, and then you use one of the rail dogs, and then another dog further on down the line. It's perfectly ninety every time. Yeah, and I've got a twenty six inch cross cut on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just so. find that the larger your crosscut sled, the the more you're really not going to want to go grab that 30 pound sled, throw it on the tabletop, and use it. But I mean, you know, it's not especially 30 if pounds. it's 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 29. Okay, well, <laughs> <laughs> they make it. <laughs> yeah, what did you make yours out of? Plywood or or what? Yeah, it's it's plywood. It's birch plywood. Okay. Yeah. I made the mistake of using three quarter MDF on my last one. Oh, it was heavy. It was heavy. very heavy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's uh, some pretty good info. Try the five-cut method. Don't chase perfection. Get really close and then start woodworking. Or you can just bypass all that stuff and just buy an Incra Miter 5000. Take, I'll take all that two seconds to get it a perfect 90. 
And you can recalibrate it. And you can recalibrate it. And you can do angles on it too. Yep. But you can, yeah. Okay. never mind. (laughs) (laughs) What were you going to say? Go ahead. I was was going to say, you you know, use making your own crosscut sled isn't the uh, end of the world. You can do some nice stuff with that, like replaceable inserts and all kinds of T tracks that you can put accessories on. Uh, You just can't turn the fence like you can on the Incra, so it's got you there. But, oh my goodness! I've seen some crosscut sleds that have like all these functionalities on them. Oh, oh yeah, that's that's true. I bet I, I shouldn't say that because I'd say there's some pretty intelligent people out there that have done this. So there's no shortage of inspiration out there for sure. Yeah, and that's that's what I said where people can get a little crazy, you know. Especially like I said with the calibrating it too. I mean, you can. I've seen you know heard people. Oh, it took me like six hours to calibrate my sled. You really spent six hours calibrating your <laughs> sled, really? It's just not necessary, man. Yeah, it no. really isn't. So, All Well, right. that's the last question. So let's talk about woodworker highlights. Sean, who Ooh. would you like to highlight this week? All right. I'm going to pick Michael Hill at MH Woodworker. He is an extremely talented woodworker. Um, he makes a lot of uh, green and green. And, and um, what's the other style that he makes a lot? Nakashima. Yes, Nakashima. Yeah. Really, really beautiful pieces. Uh, you know, he's, he's very talented. He, uh, his feet is just inspirational. It shows you a lot of how to in his videos, posts a lot of videos. Um, just a very, very talented guy, um, at MH Woodworker on Instagram. And he was also on guys, other podcasts, they interviewed him. So if you want to get to know Michael and a little bit about his background, check him out at MH Woodworker on the against the grain podcast and at MH Woodworker on Instagram. Yep. All right, guy, it's you now. My pick this week, his name is, uh, I'm going to probably butcher his last name, Dan DeShanes. And he's Tom Foolery Wood, all one word on Instagram. He's from Seattle and he makes a lot of really cool, I'm in this mid-century modern thing right now. So he makes a lot of cool, I've been following for a long time, a lot of mid-century modern stuff, a lot of really cool designs, but he takes them. I don't know if he's taking the pictures or he's having them professionally done, but he's got some great photographs on his wow. feed. And he photo and he, he is he updates pretty regularly on his feed, you know, not every day, but you know, probably three, four times a week. And they're really high quality photos of his work. And uh, he does some real nice stuff. So Tom Foolery Wood, Dan DeShanes. I'm saying his name wrong. Mm-hmm. So he's yeah he's very talented. I just just followed him just after you said that, and he wow he is, makes beautiful stuff. Yeah, Hui, who do you have? I've got Seth Miller at East Oak WW. So that's East Oak, how you normally uh, spell that, and WW, and it's all in one word on Instagram. And he actually won third place. I chose him to, for third place on the recent Simple Cove contest. And I really liked his liquor cabinet a lot. Very nice joinery, clean lines, really nice detail with uh, with some of the hidden compartments, nice details on the drawer pulls, veneer work. Check him out. You'll really like a lot of his process shots and uh, process videos as well. He does some short videos. I, I enjoy his work. I enjoy seeing him build the things that he, that he chooses. Uh, like I said, very clean lines, and he does a lot of process shots. So check him out. Cool. Yeah. 
he also the 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 species and or the grain that he chooses is just amazing he he yeah. really pays attention to that some of the grain that he chooses for the projects on the boards and stuff is really nice well, I think that wraps up this show. Please remember this podcast is here to answer your woodworking questions from the woodworking community. So if you have woodworking questions, please send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. We'd also like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and the feedback. And you can reach me at alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are on my website. Guy, where can we find you? Guyswoodshop.com. And Sean? You can find me at simplecove.com and at simplecove on Instagram and YouTube. All right. Guys, thanks for talking, and uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks. See you later. Later.